Hey, everybody, Todd here. I hope you're having a great day. But I always kind of hope that, so that's not that unusual, really, or even that special. But this is part two of Jim Marinus, Ron Ferris, and Tony Mashara, and the conversation we had around their new book and really sort of the progress of this new view from the North American standpoint for the last 25 years or so. It's pretty good. If you haven't heard part one, you might want to. It was last week, but if not, you know, there's no rules here. Go crazy. You can pick right up. I, there's nothing giant missing, but I think you'll enjoy it. So sit back, relax. Part two is really fun. Here it comes. Zang, Zamboni. Hey, Todd. No, I'm Todd. Wait, hey, everybody. I'm Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Podcast. Hello. Welcome back to the pod. It is the 1st of June, or not, it's the first part of June. It's not actually the first, well, it depends when you listen to this. I mean, you can download this anytime. But when I'm recording it, we're into the month of June, my month. It's a great month because there's lots of porch TV, lots of bike riding. It's been pretty darn good, you guys. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not tossing out here. But uh, nice weather. So it's been fun for me. It is a great time to hang out and enjoy everything that's going on. And big raft, whitewater rafting trip coming up. Ugh, get ready because that means there'll be some wet um, underwear. That's what that means. I don't know if you know that. And that's not that comfortable between you and I. So today is part two of the pod. And this is with Tony and Jim and Ron. And now we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of the jumping off point. And you'll hear more about the book for sure because that's a big part of the pod. And that conversation is a great one. It's. I think you're going to enjoy this immensely, and that means a lot. And if you haven't heard part one, who cares? Part two's here. It's too late. You can't go back. Just keep walking the dog or whatever it is you're doing and uh, enjoy this conversation. We're going to pick right up where we left off, but it's kind of like we started anew. So enjoy. This is fun. Here they come. Big thanks to Ron. Big thanks to Jim. Big thanks to Tony. But mostly, I really enjoyed this. This was a great conversation. Here it comes. That's a really good diving board into this idea of how your concepts have changed over the time you've thought about these concepts. I'm super interested in this, talking to you three guys. And I'll be honest, other people I probably wouldn't ask this question because I didn't I wouldn't really care what they had to say <laughs> but you guys I'm I'm the, I think the growth and change which is really what this book I think is about well it, it's about this this notion of the critical steps and your discussion around it but it's the growth and change in how you've thought about these that I think is really interesting especially to people around the globe who will find this read interesting what's interesting is uh you know, in the you know, this was a, a springboard off to chapter five in my previous book, risk based thinking. Right, right. And, and and what a beautiful way to sort of make that transition. I think that's really but, cool. But what it did, you know, some people have asked me, you know, well, why are you writing a book about something you already wrote a chapter about? And uh when you start unpacking critical steps and looking at the nuances associated with it. Uh, what we, we converted what uh, basically a, 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 a 20 page chapter into 130 pages. The whole idea is we're not trying to make it more complicated, but what we're trying to do is help managers understand what those levers are, 
uh, and managing that risk that people pose the pose the the uh, the assets of the organization. So so what we realize is there's more to managing critical steps than just simply telling people to pay attention. Right. And, and to me, that's interesting. Let me let me set that question up because, Tony, you really you my mind's rolling. I think there was a time. So let's go back in our histories. So let's go back all of us 20 years, right? <laughs> Life was it's more than that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's we, we can go back a long ways. And I think we would have looked 20 years ago, 25 years ago, at a critical step as something to to bolster, control, protect. Um, what are the words I'm looking for? You guys jump in anytime. But Well, we use a phrase called operational hazard control. Right. So you're so the idea is uh, when people do work, you know, if there's an operation that has the capacity to do work, it has the uh, commensurate capacity to do harm. Right. And what's harm. amazing is I think I think in the old days we would have we would have built a system that says do those perfectly, care more, try harder, mm-hmm. jump harder, and we've matured um, in many ways. <laughs> I mean, you can just look at us and we've matured, um, but the hair is a lot grayer. <laughs> I would add to it. Yeah. I would add to it. Uh, I'd say one of the things that's evolved over the last 25 years since we brought up, since we originally, the idea of critical step was already there. You know, right. It was in the, it was in the F- uh, food and drug administration. Uh, it was in uh, the department of defense and it was all, obviously it was in the DOE, especially out at Pantex where they, they, you know, handle nuclear, nuclear weapons. So, uh, you got to make sure those things go right. But, but, but what, back in the, I guess at MPO at the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, when we started thinking about critical steps, that was back in the 98, 99, uh, timeframe. We still didn't even have use that phrase critical steps, but it was the Pantex. We started looking at Pantex and Pantex used that phrase critical step. And that's where it, where where we start where we the commercial nuclear industry started using it, uh, and uh, in fact, I think we started using it the year before we actually showed up at uh, Idaho National Lab to talk to DOE about the Impo Human Performance Program. So uh, it was right about the same time frame when uh, we introduced it to DOE. When did we shift from the notion that? Critical steps must be done must be done perfectly to this idea of adaptive capacity. I mean, it was a slow shift. So, it, well, it hasn't really shifted. Now, we still we still in in this book we got we got four objectives. So, the first book, the first objective is to identify the critical right. step, right, or uh, uh, recognize the critical step because not all critical steps have been identified in a procedure, right. right? And then the second one is to exercise positive control. That's the second objective. Let's exercise positive control when we do that work. But as you already know, you know, we, we people still make mistakes. And, uh, and so we got to the third objective is to fail safely if we do lose control. So, but the second objective is exercise positive control. That means that whatever, you know, what we intend to do, is what we do, and that's all. That's you know what, right. what we what is intended to happen is what happens, and that's all that happens. And so, the standard for performing a critical step is always perfection. All right, always. 
you know, so because if you think about the definition of a critical step, it's that human action that that will trigger immediate, irreversible, intolerable harm to an asset if that action or a preceding action is done improperly. So you got to get it right the first time. It's the, it goes along with the, the 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 old adage: failure is not an option, uh, and that's the idea of a critical step. But we're going to make mistakes at critical steps, and that's why we have to fail safely. Jim, I, I want to back up just a tad. Let's let's do the the twenty five year backup. And um, Todd, you probably recall uh, back in the early nineties. Uh, post Tiger teams and post um, uprising by the research community at these archaic uh, impositions that were being suggested. Uh, there were several national labs, Idaho being one where I was, that uh, chose to propose a, a little different approach. And um, we actually continued to suggest that uh, although there had been some transgressions, in general, um, we were dealing with highly experienced, highly motivated, inherently uh, safe research approaches, and that we needed to build the systems that were being asked for, you know, this is when Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board came in and all that, right? Uh, we needed to build those that were based on the technical expertise of the research community. And uh, therefore, we actually were successful and, and fortunately, integrated safety management uh, gave us permission to base our approach on technical expertise. And we designed systems that ensured success. And we actually, although, as I was saying, we didn't know a lot about now what we now know, but we, uh, before Rasmussen even uh, put out his dynamic safety model, we were designing boxes for our folks to operate in. And we were pinpointing points that had to go right. Those were our critical steps. We didn't call them that. Right. But, you know, we had a basis to be able to do this work and, and still allow the freedom to adapt. And we, we pointed at the technical expertise of the individuals to make that okay. It was rough. It was basic but it provided a good foundation for us to, to continue to develop. Well, that was the, the big aha for me, uh, Jim. And that's when Ron introduced this idea of failing safely with this book. I hadn't originally thought of including failing safely because uh, you know, my, my presumption is you got to get it right the first time. And uh, that's not always true. And so that's why the, the, we spent a lot of time in our chapter six, which is managing critical steps uh, on adapt, uh, actually, what was it, uh, uh, augmenting adaptive capacity. Because, uh, because when, when you do lose control, and there will be occasions when you lose control at a critical step, people have to be able to adapt to, to uh, uh, mitigate that harm, minimize that harm. And this idea of recoverability, this adaptive capacity, that's a pretty, I mean, that, that's kind of new in our, well, new is the wrong word, but that, that, that's, that drifted in slowly over time into our 
conceptual thinking of of what this looks like. And I mm-hmm. think that's really an interesting change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's really cool that you guys took that on as a part of this discussion. In my mind, this is a this is a this is a way of looking at a critical step process in a in what's the word maybe a more effective way i don't know if that's the right word but a, a, a new way would you agree well, it, it provide it, in my mind it, it provides a means of managing the risk you know that's that's what the to you know going back 20 25 years the the the, the mantra was uh, error prevention error right. avoidance right well that's not realistic right but that, but so we need to re. What I'm hoping will happen is managers will will, will re refocus or, or reframe their approach to to human performance as risk management. We're, ra- we're managing the risk of losing control at a point in an activity that could cause serious harm. We're not out there to promote error avoidance or error prevention. It's about promoting success where the risk is highest. That's a pretty bold yeah. statement. Yeah, that's what it's for. Yeah, I, I would add just a little bit on this as well. Um, one of the things that I found when I was doing some research um, at Idaho National Lab on uh, utilizing modern technologies to address human performance and human error was I, I went to one of the nuclear power plants that, it, that it, uh, allowed us to come in and do the research and set up the, the testing. Um, we, they pulled all their human performance folks together, and they all looked at me in concert and they picked up their uh, their nuclear jewelry around their neck on uh-huh. their badge with yeah. all their human performance tools we all know about, right? Like all the here's all your human performance tools, and they said, "I hope you are not here to give us any more of this crap." <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't help but laugh, and I thought, "No, no, 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 sir, I am not here to do that." Uh, but I am interested in what you had to say about that, and, and kind of my discovery and and. Um, Epri ended up writing this, or Impo did, I believe, uh, later on, but I wrote it in my research, was that, you know, I believed at the time that these, those human performance tools were actually be causal in, in nuclear events because people were so focused on these air prevention tools and techniques throughout the entire process that they weren't focused on what must absolutely go right. They weren't focused on what was a critical step or risk-important actions, which, by the way, at the time, actually the term – and, and thank goodness for Tony and his his work on this, uh, the idea of a risk-important action, creating the preconditions, what we call risk-important conditions, that set the stage for, 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 the, for the action of the critical step is so, so important. Because uh, one of the facilities I worked at, um, we were doing, I was looking over a checklist, doing some work up there, and uh, the gentleman was a senior uh, nuclear operator at a major nuclear power plant. And he said to me, I said, um, what's your definition of critical step? And he said it beautifully. He repeated it perfectly. And I said, um, you just handed me this, this checklist. I said, what on this, by the way, everything on this is considered a critical step. I said, are they? And when we got done, none of them were, but it was an entire checklist called critical step. And I think one of the biggest problems in, in industry where they've had some maturity in the, in the process is they've overused over inundated and focused too much on this air prevention when it's not necessary and it cost them efficiency and productivity, they didn't know where to focus their energy. And so in our book, we spend some time actually um, helping them understand how to 
create efficiencies from this process. Because if you know these pivotal moments, if you would, these critical junctions in the work activities, then you can know what it is I need to check these conditions that the risk important actions created, validate those, and then be air-free in the operation of the critical step. And should we fail and, and something we didn't know, which we don't always know everything, then how do you fail safe? That's kind of been our approach in the book. And I thought that was so important to bring to light is this efficiency factor that can be gained by managing critical steps because so much energy, it, you know, I always say this, my analogy is I love steak and I like a little salt on my steak, but a little salt is good, but a lot of salt is bad. And the nuclear industry was putting too much salt on their mm. on their performance. And it was just over inundating the community with all these human performance tools and techniques for the entire process when it was absolutely unnecessary. And where you, do you need to apply it? And you can see where what you just said, which by the way was beautiful, would have been kind of blasphemous, Smobby, um, oh, yeah. 10 years ago. I mean, that, or 15 years ago or seven years ago, pick the time. We would have said, get out, leave us. Yeah. Yes, they Todd, Todd, I know that uh, Jim's got some perspective on this. Yeah, you ought to hear what he has to say here. Hit me, Jim. Not, not always, not always. <laughs> and, and really, in in the research community, and that's that's where I spent a lot of my my career. Uh, we actually built in time for folks to converse, and we we did it at the expense of the over specification that Ron is talking about, and. Um, that's that's one of the reasons we had these um, these robust discussions of the need for conversation, uh, because just, just because you're taking out provisions procedurally uh, doesn't mean that there isn't now a need to remain cognizant. You know, procedures are good in that respect. They help you stay kind of engaged and focused and keeping your your finger on on the pulse of the overall operation. Um, what what we found is that if we could focus on those those critical aspects, we didn't call them critical steps back then, but uh, then allow the, the technical experts and, and suggest that they needed to converse, especially across organizational lines, interdisciplinarity really is what we were talking about, uh, that we had a much more robust, resilient uh, research operation. And uh, the the clarity that you get through that underspecification of all those things that you actually can absorb human error in versus those things that must absolutely go right releases you to have those conversations. And, and it's those conversations that establish that that insulation from the brittleness that many organizations uh, experience, especially in extreme events. You know, the closer you get to that boundary of failure, the more brittle you become naturally. Would you- and I like, I like that word that you know, Jim just used, brittle. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily, we didn't use that word in this book, but critical steps by definition is, is brittle. Right. That's, that's the point in your operation that you're brittle and you cannot exceed the margins at that point. Would you say this book then really coaches and allows leaders some 
intellectual ammunition to have these conversations and to think these ideas? Oh, I hope so. Absolutely. Yeah. It, the problem with, with, uh, at the management level is they try to oversimplify this, this, uh, their approach to managing the risk of human performance. They think it's just simply pay attention, follow the procedure and you'll be safe. And, uh, that is, that is, that is not always true. That's not always true. Most of the time it is, but there's uh, times when the, the procedures are underspecified, they're inaccurate, they have the wrong information in them, or the, or the training was insufficient for, the, for what they're, trying to, they're being asked to do. And so the, the frontline worker has to have that uh, capacity, that technical expertise to adapt. And managers need to plan for that. They need to plan for the situations where the, the procedures are inadequate. All right. And that's that idea that uh, they got to design in. That's what we spent so much time trying to think, well, how can a manager design in or build in adaptive capacity? Jim, you had a question. Well, I just wanted to add to that. We also spend a a fairly uh, significant uh, amount of time describing and and helping uh, managers understand how to go out in the field Mm. and listen. Mm -hmm and learn and uh, be able to kind of change that conversation from compliance focus to learning focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would just add uh, just one thing to what these guys have just said. Um, I, I think one of the biggest issues that you quite often find in uh, H&OP or HRO is this, real focus on uh, what what can go wrong. And the, the issue I have with that, and, and I think you, you will find this written in the way we wrote the book, was that that idea is infinite, right? The, the possibilities of failure are infinite. And what we talk about is the finite. That must go right. That, that what must go right is, is a very finite set of things and conditions. And by Knowing what's finite, then you it allows you to your focus there. Now we still talk about building the capacity to fail safe, but with a focus on what must go right, and if it doesn't, then what? Mm-hmm. So it still ties back to that finite component, not an infinite number of things. And quite often, I would leave these pre-job briefings that folks would have, and the final question is, uh, you know, what can go wrong, and and. Uh, the folks would say, well, somebody going to fall down the stairs and get killed, you know, <laughs> like, well, okay. <laughs> or an airplane could fly into the place. I mean, it was just not focused on what needed to be focused on. There was mm-hmm. some source of energy movement, of matter, a transmission of information that was critical to the operations that was associated with assets. If we know those things and they're finite, that allows us to focus ourselves on what must absolutely go right and the preconditions to make it so. That is a, a finite discussion where mm. you you got workers walking out of a pre-job brief thinking that the worst thing that can happen to me is traversing from here to there and falling down. Yeah, it can happen. But associated with the task, what are we talking about? And I think that conversation changes for, for us. I, I'm hoping that we see folks starting to change the way they, they uh, design work, prescribe work, and then execute work. Those phases of work um, through this idea of, of a finite set of risk management focus uh, that, that's very important for success. 
Todd, can I jump in here? Yeah, sure. Uh, Jim brought in uh, this idea of thinking fast and slow. I thought I thought this was right on the money because uh, this, you know, when when you're when you're, you're as a worker, you're about to perform a critical step. You do not want to be thinking fast. You want to slow down, be more methodical, and uh, uh, mindful of what you're about to do, the hazard, the assets. What are the what's the what are the critical safety critical parameters I got to be watching and pay, paying attention to? What am I going to do? You, that that thought process, but 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 Jim, I or I can't remember if Ron or Jim mentioned it earlier, but there's phases of the work where there's no risk, and you can speed up, you can exercise fast thinking. So there's a business case, there's a business proposition uh, or value proposition that goes with this idea of, of critical steps, is it helps you know where you can actually create efficiencies, like someone had said earlier. Well. And- I'll, I'll add to that, Tony, and, and really uh, building on what Ron had to say as well. Uh, the the thing that a, a number of um, folks, I think, would ask us is, yeah, but what about chaos and complexity? Mm-hmm. What about the variability in the work environment? Um, the efficiencies that we create by getting a good focus on what must go right free up that time for the conversations and the thinking and the application of, of expertise to uh, looking for those variabilities that are inevitable mm-hmm. and, and talking about them and then using the anticipation, monitoring for the existence of anomalies, uh, talking across organizational boundaries. Hey, I saw this. What do you think about that? Mm. Um, and, and helping to get better at, at dealing with that everyday variability. This will be fun. I'm excited about this. How hard was it to get the band together for this uh, conversation today, Tony? Did you have to work really hard? No. Uh-uh. No. <laughs> These guys are always available. Well, that was easy. Most, that, most of the time. The, the weather's so bad in Idaho, we, Jim and I can't go do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like I said, I think I might go skiing later, but Todd, I, I wouldn't miss the opportunity to spend some time with you. And, and I'm going to add to what Tony started off with. I've learned so much. And every time I can have an interaction, I, I'm going to take it. So I really appreciate it. You guys, by, are the so way, by the way, let me just throw out a caveat out there. Um, this may rub against there's, this is about managing risk. This book is about managing risk that that uh, that human fallibility poses to to any high risk operation. Uh, and so, by necessity, we we had to sort of uh, take some of these com, you know complicated uh, uh, academic principles, uh, technical kind of things, and boil them down to its essence. And, uh, and so we take some leeway, some license to, uh, to uh, uh, simplify, maybe oversimplify in some cases, simplify these ideas and principles so that managers can use them. So it may rub against some of the, you know, some of the academics or the researchers who might read the book, and it's not exactly the way that the research might be uh, uh, revealing a, a concept, but we're trying to make it usable. That's good for him. Builds character. (laughs) 
Well, it, for me, I mean, one of the other things, Todd, that we did in this book, because all of us are studies of HRO, high reliability organizations, mm-hmm. resilience engineering, uh, human organizational performance, and, um, and and some extent human factors. And, and we looked at this and knowing full well that we didn't want to be academic, uh, we use a lot of what Tony was talking about, this license to simplify these very complex issues that many folks um, speak about, but really take them. And, 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 and I love what Tony always calls himself. He's the, the great translator. And I, I consider myself <laughs> one of those too, because I'm not smart enough to speak academic speak uh, all that well. I always tease about that, but I, I can apply it and put in a story format and, and, and get you to think about it and go, wow, I can apply that. And one of the things we did in this book is we truly took it, I thought, from soup to nuts to uh, make it an applied science book. It's designed for the, the those frontline leaders and, and managers of the organization and to help those frontline workers that are touching the system, that, 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 that have the potential for things to go bad, and help them be successful. And, and we, we really talk about the idea that, you know, even though the workers, your most, you know, uh, uh, um, well, they 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 bring the most variability to work and 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 introduce risk uh, because the human fallibility. We also talk about the hero effect and their adaptive capacity as things change every day. They're bringing success to your organization mm-hmm. despite your dysfunction. Right. Despite all the dysfunction you put in front of them, they create success for you. And we give them a model to do that with with uh, simplicity and with language that they can use. And we we spent a lot of time on, and I made it a whole separate document because I refer to it constantly in the work that I do. Uh, we've got an entire list of terminology, and a lot of folks may disagree even with the the way we define things. Uh, but we we spent a lot of struggles arguing, discussing. And talking about definitions in this book, so we also leave them with a language to speak yeah. so that we can all talk together, which I think is important. Well, and you know that's what the book does, right? Definitions are in people, not in the term. And what yeah. you did is you are three people who got together and collectively created a body of knowledge to help define how you guys believe and think about these issues. That's what's so beautiful about the book, right? I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing. And I think that's what you bring to the table. And it's just so wonderful that you could get together and write it. But I think there's even more to that. It's it, This book is not about the book. It's about the journey, or as Eric has started calling it, the voyage. I had to define what voyage is. But it's about the voyage you guys have all three been on individually through your life's work and how collectively you came together and brought that together. And that's really yeah, well. A sailor's voyage makes sense to us. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I had to, I had to actually look up the difference between voyage and journey. So I uh, heard that. <laughs> I was glad to see you do that, Todd. Yeah, I did. Uh, I had to think through that one, right? Because that's a big one. But I think collectively, you guys coming together that that's what's that's really a special part of this book. And well, the, if you think about it, I think that with the three of us together there's well over a hundred years of experience associated with going into this book. Yeah. You can just look at you and see that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, we actually learned from some of that experience. Well, and that's the cool part. I mean, the cool part about this 
is what collectively brought together and how it changed the way you think of it. I mean, Ron's, the whole concept of infinite ways to fail and finite ways to succeed is really, like that. that's really powerful, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's what workers do all the time is they have, there's an infinite number of ways for this to go wrong. And they're constantly dealing in real time because we know, all of us know on this little conversation, that events happen all the time. It's just that mostly they happen in a way that, that they're recoverable. And this mm-hmm. idea that they're recoverable is really a powerful way to think about it. Man, you guys, this was great. We should do this more often. How about tomorrow? Yeah, I got, I've got time. <laughs> this is the new me, man. I, I, I love having all this time. Yeah, this is like this is like jamming, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like like getting together at a bluegrass festival. My favorite thing to talk about all the time. We should write a book. I'm always up. I just can't find people that'll actually do it. Everyone says they want a co-author, but you guys actually did it. Well, it was a pleasure working with these guys. Even though at times I I, I admit I got frustrated. But it just it just stretched my mind to think I got to think more deeply on this issue. And uh, uh, did I ever acquiesce to you guys? I think I did a few times, right? <laughs> I, I said I no most of- once. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, maybe, maybe, maybe more. No, it was a pleasure. This this was a real learning experience, and I considered it a, an honor to to be able to to work with these guys. So I know so, Tony acquiesced. I know he did because he kept the book to 130 pages. So I, I know he had to roll over at some point. Uh, I, I got to tell you, my wife walked in uh, numerous times here in our conversation. We'd often have early morning meetings, which, by the way, 730 Idaho time is pretty early. I got a lot of chores to do on the farm here. And she would come in and just shake her head. And she said, you know, I really thought that beautiful mind thing. You guys know that beautiful mind show right. <laughs> movie. Uh she says, I thought your beautiful mind was all alone, but I see you brought two other people into your beautiful mind. <laughs> I said, yes, I do. That is a good way to think of it. Pretend we're writing a book. <laughs> and that you had, that, 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 I can't even, I'm so excited. There you have it. So wasn't that a good, that was a great conversation. I really am tongue-tied. This is weird. It's because it was so much fun. It was so much fun to talk to those guys. I don't get a chance really to talk to them very much at all. Uh, and so this is a treat for me. And it's such a pleasure to be able to share it with you guys on the pod. So that works out really well. That is the podcast. We're a little long. But I told you, I didn't know what to cut. And I cut like a bunch of stuff at the end because we were just chitting and chatting and getting stuff done and talked about. But I left what I think matters. And I definitely left some interest in that book. I know you're going to want to grab that book there's no question about that until then my friends learn something new every single day bet you did today have as much fun as you possibly can and for goodness sakes take care of each other check in on each other and be safe